Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Charles J. Holden, co-author with Zach Massetti and Jared Pader of the book Republican Populist, Spiro Agnew and the Origins of Donald Trump's America. Chuck, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Well, I come from uh, a farm in Iowa, and I went to undergrad, got my undergraduate degree at St. John's University in Minnesota, uh, where I majored in business. Uh, but after that, I was working in St. Paul for a couple of years and got the history bug, uh, surrounded by lots of wonderful used bookstores back in the day, back in the early to mid 80s, and just realized that. Uh, I wanted to take a stab at a career in, in academia and in scholarship. So from that, I took the plunge and started out at Creighton University, which at the time had a very small master's program, which was a good fit for me because as a business major, I was coming in pretty unprepared to study history at the graduate, le- at the graduate level. So Creighton University was a great fit for me as a master's student. Um, I loved it and decided I wanted to press on, and so I applied uh, to the Ph.D. program at Penn State University and went there, started there in 1990, and was lucky to be on a, uh, in a great department with some wonderful historians. Uh, Nan Woodruff was my advisor, and Gary Gallagher, and Laurie Ginsberg, and Foley Glimp, and it was really an exciting time to be at Penn State and study in American history. Um, and from that, then I started to transition my way into the, into the job market. And I, I taught on contract for a few years at university of North Carolina at Greensboro, which was a real lucky break for me. Um, I, again, was surrounded by some great historians, uh, Bill Link in particular, uh, was my department chair at that time. And, and he and I came to be really good friends and have shared work ever since. And then in 1999, um, I was offered the job at St. Mary's College of Maryland, um, and I've been there ever since. Was it uh, that association with Maryland that uh, steered, that directed you towards a uh, book about Spear Ragnew, or was there another reason why you uh, chose to co-author a book about him? No, you're exactly right, Mark. What happened was shortly after I got to St. Mary's, a couple of years later, we hired Zach Massetti, one of my co-authors there. Um, and Zach was the first director for the Center for the Study of Democracy that St. Mary's College had just created. So Zach came to St. Mary's, um, and I was on the advisory panel for this center. So Zach and I got to know each other right away. And we were looking for something to collaborate on, something Maryland-based, something history, political science, Zach's PhD is in political science. 
And we were kind of batting around ideas for a while. And uh, one day, about 2004 or five, Zach was said, Spiro Agnew. And I, yeah, let's think about that. <laughs> I hope that was in the and context we of a conversation. Like, he just didn't suddenly, you know, sit there. Your guys were talking about tennis and all of a sudden he blurted out, Spiro Agnew. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been kind of tossing around ideas and nothing really felt right. And, and you know, literally on our way to coffee one day, we, we were walking over to our coffee shop in the campus center. And he just like, hey, Spiro Agnew. And I think. I knew exactly what he was getting at, uh, that, yeah, that's an interesting story that's Maryland-based um, and not told um, a dozen times over. And so we got to thinking about it. And in the meantime, what, what, one of the things that Zach got started at, at the Center for Study of Democracy was a, a lecture series. We were really fortunate at St. Mary's College to have um, on our board of trustees and on our foundation board uh, ben Bradley from the, you know, the famed Washington Post um, uh, executive editor. And Ben was a wonderful friend of, of, of the college. And so Zach had reached out to Ben about starting this lecture series. Ben, of course, was very agreeable. And one, um, one year we invited Richard Cohen as the Bradley lecture for that year. And of course, Richard Cohen had been on the Agnew beat for the Washington Post uh, in the early 70s, and when when Agnew then was forced to resign, so we thought, well, here's a great chance for Zach and uh, myself to start to dig in a little bit on the Agnew story. What better sources than to hear Ben Bradley and Richard Cohen talk about it? So uh, we got to spend an evening with with Ben Bradley and Richard Cohen at. Ben Bradley has a house near St. Mary's College um, had, and, and it was fabulous just hearing these two, you know, legends really of American journalism talk about the days at the Washington Post, talking about the Agnew case. And in the aftermath of that conversation, Zach and I were highly motivated then to, to start digging in. So, so we first, you know, at, at first we just, we wrote an article about how the Washington Post uh, covered uh, Agnew. Uh, there are some um, legal issues about who owned Richard Cohen's notes, and so it was a it was a good story to tell. And we got that article published. And but both Zach and I thought, there's boy, there's more to this story. But I was working on another book at the time. I was doing a book on academic freedom in the South. Um, Zach uh, was getting ready to leave St. Mary's College. He went to Oklahoma. Um, university next in, uh, as a dean, and then ended up at Ripon College in Wisconsin, where he's the president uh, up there. And so we both, you know, we both kind of put Agnew off to the side for a few years, until about 2014, I would say. And we were both in a position where we thought we could get back to Agnew. So maybe this is one of those stories of that I, I think a lot of scholars have of of, you know, put an idea in, in, you know, don't discard it. You never know when you're going to, it might come back. And so, um, so this is what happened here. So about 2014, 2015, we were both in a position where we were thinking this would be a good time to get back to, to Agnew. Zach up in Ripon had met Jerry Poder, our third co-author. Jerry's a historian at Lawrence University up in Appleton. He was interested in the project. So the three of us then were set to really 
uh, start digging in. And, and we thought the time was right because we're looking now, 2014, 2015, we're in the aftermath of Sarah Palin, the tea, rise of the Tea Party. And from our early, earlier work on Agnew, we saw something in, in the appeal uh, to both uh, Sarah Palin and the Tea Party. So we thought, we thought you know, echoes of, of Agnew's political style uh, in both. So we were we were in the in the midst of really pressing forward on on a book. We'd reached out to UVA, uh, had a book contract uh, we were working out, and then 2015, of course, you know, uh, Trump decides to run for president, and as his campaign unfolded, and we're furiously researching and writing the book, uh, we felt like we were really onto something then. So that's that's kind of the the origin story of the book, and and how the three of us came together. Spiro Agnew is in some ways a very unlikely subject for reasons that the three of you mentioned at the beginning of your book, because you describe his, he has this very low reputation in, uh, in, among a lot of uh, scholars and, and historians today. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain uh, why Spiro Agnew is, is so poorly regarded and why that may have uh, led a lot of people to uh, misjudge his place in history. Sure. Uh, I, it's, a, it's a story of, of where uh, politics and culture were at that time. Um, so even during his, his vice presidency, he was uh, notorious, right? He was, he was, for some, he was a very divisive figure. For some, he was this, this welcome and celebrated icon of middle America, or as Nixon described it, you know, the silent majority. Uh, to others, he was this offensive, um, overly divisive, just endlessly aggressive, um, uh, almost attack dog on behalf of, of of the Nixon administration, which which I mean he was, and and he would say yes, that's that's what I should be doing. But I think to you know he, he the way he left the vice presidency was in scandal. Um, and he was there's an investigation that eventually um, unearthed him taking having taken bribes um, throughout his Maryland political career. And I can talk a little bit about that um, um, as well. Um, and the evidence was was just solid. And so he had to resign. And really, Mark, back in he resigned in 73. And, and back then. You know, when you resigned out of scandal, that was it. You were gone. Uh, the, as, they, as the kids would say today, you were ghosted. Um, and, and so he left. The, the last, last image that most people had of Spiro Agnew was one of, of shame and humiliation. And so there he stayed um, for a long time um, until um, about, you know, 10 years ago. And I, and I think, I do think, the context of, you know, the Sarah Palin's and the Tea Parties and now Donald Trump uh, has kind of prompted a rethinking about uh, this, this, this populist, slashing, always aggressive style of politics. And, and as we've begun to rethink that, suddenly Sparrow Agnew's legacy comes into, uh, comes into view again. And, and so that's, that, was, that was part of our goal then is, is to really get in and, and look at different aspects of, of his career to, to see this kind of 
conservative populist temperament taking root in the Republican Party through Agnew. You know, if, if the way we describe today is if, if you know, if Agnew had had Twitter, um, he, you know, this scandal would, would not have faced him that much. He would have maybe lost the vice presidency, but kept his audience. Um, I, I think he would have been really effective on something like Twitter. But of course, we just didn't have it. And so once once you left, that was it. You were done. Yeah, that, that aspect of his audience was something that 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 uh, really I thought was fascinating, and, I, and I'm hoping you develop that in a little bit. But the, one of the other things, I, and I was hoping you, you'd start with this, is it, because one of the things that I, I think that legacy and that image of him resigning the vice presidency in disgrace it obscures is just how meteoric his rise was, and, yeah. and it, it was something that that I thought you, you developed very nicely in that chapter. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain how it is that this uh, person who you, you is 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 this uh, you know post-war American. He's, he's gone to war. Mm-hmm. He has this uh, successful career as an attorney, how he then gets into politics and then how he quickly goes in a, in a, in a few short years from being this, yeah. you know, guy running for office for the first time to being vice president of the United States. <laughs> Indeed. It, it is a, a, a kind of rocket ship to fame. Um, and, and part of what, what, landed him so squarely in the public eye was his uh, image of being a, a normal average man, which in many aspects he really was. His background is extremely humble. Um, he's born in Baltimore City and, and son of a Greek immigrant father who um, was, you know, middle class with the Great Depression, so times were tough. Um, there was nothing in Agnew's background that would have predicted uh, the kind of fame that, that he would achieve in the late 60s and early 70s. So he was a very indifferent high school student. Uh, he went, he started to college at Johns Hopkins, but by his own admission, wasn't really interested in, in college and didn't do very well and, and, and dropped out. He got uh, pulled into the army during World War II, like, like, like a lot of men did. Um, he, he served honorably in World War II. He, he had a, you know, very solid career as, um, as a soldier and, and fought at the Battle of the Bulge and recalled just how brutal the conditions were. He, he remembered sleeping on ice for a week at some point before the, uh, the, before they were relieved. Um, and then like a lot of that generation, uh, came back home and, and tried to, pick up the pieces from their, their pre-war life. So he, he started working various jobs, but was attending night school uh, at the University of Baltimore Law School, uh, trying to you know, work his way up and, and, and advance his career. He got his law degree. And then, like, again, like a lot of that generation, moved out to the suburbs uh, in the 1950s. And the suburbs here would be Baltimore County. A little bit confusing. You have Baltimore City, and then all around the city, you have Baltimore County, and it's this huge um, entity. Um, but it was a fast-growing suburban area. At the same time, he he got the inkling that maybe he'd like to try politics, and he got a bit of advice from one of his lawyer mentors, who said, "Well, if you want to be a, a fast success in Maryland politics, be a Republican." because Maryland was a heavily democratic state. And so, so there would be less competition. And 
so that pretty much accounted for him becoming a Republican. Um, so in the 50s, then, as a Republican, as an attorney out in Baltimore County, then he's starting to find his way. And some of his earliest political uh, efforts were sitting on the county zone of appeals. Um, and that doesn't sound very sexy, uh, but if you think about a suburban county where there's lots of development, there are lots of homes and businesses and streets um, uh, being made, that, that you know, zoning actually is a pretty important uh, function. So he sits on the zoning board uh, as the 50s end. He decides he, he wants to make a run at, at a circuit court judge position. He doesn't get that. He then gets removed from the zoning board by the Democrats who run the county council. And he takes this very personally. So there's, there's a bit of the Agnew style we can see. Uh, and he decides he's going to show them. And so he runs for county council executive, uh, the Baltimore County Executive in 1962, as a Republican and wins in an upset. So he, again, he's, he's showing that he can win here in unlikely and improbable ways that, that he would win the county executive race in a heavily Democratic uh, county. Democrats outnumbered Republicans in Baltimore County four to one. But there was a sense in Baltimore County where you had a lot of new voters, people moving out from the city, that they were kind of tired of the old Democratic machine and they wanted a fresh face. And here is this World War II vet, clean cut, good looking guy, uh, healthy, handsome family. Why not Spiro Agnew? So he spent four years as Baltimore County executive. But Again, that the, the fast rise to the top of the party in Maryland. Now, this makes him one of the leading Maryland Republicans and the most likely candidate to win in 66 when he when his term is up as county executive, throws his hat in the ring for for Maryland governor. He easily wins the Republican nomination. And then he gets a huge break because the Maryland Democratic Party at this time nominated one last time a segregationist, a guy named George Mahoney. And this was just manna from heaven for Agnew because the increasingly liberal parts of the Maryland Democratic Party, uh, the suburbs of D.C., Montgomery County, for example, the Baltimore City vote, heavily African-American, there was no way they were going to vote for George Mahoney in 66. And so you have lots of Democrats for Agnew clubs pop up, and Agnew then wins pretty handily in 1966. Again, another unlikely turn of events where this Republican upstart wins now the governor's race in a heavily Democratic state. So he's in as governor starting in 67, then he wins the 66 race. And the next step... Um, is opened by tragedy, and that is the Martin Luther King assassination in April of 68. And like a lot of other urban areas, Baltimore uh, experienced a great deal of unrest. And Agnew, as governor then, decided he wanted to meet with the local African-American leaders of the Baltimore community. So they send out these invitations to about 100 or so local African-American leaders. They meet, and Agnew shows up with 
the leaders of the state law enforcement, head of the National Guard, head of the state police, all happened to be white. And this meeting was also televised, which indicates that there was some recognition that this is a pretty important meeting we're having here. And at this meeting, Agnew just lays into the leadership of the black community for the unrest. And he basically says, this is all your fault. And uh, the, the members of the black community sitting in that room were instantly infuriated and began to walk out, most of them. Um, and so this caused a huge uh, stir in Maryland, this, this, uh, this sort of showdown, if you will, between Agnew, uh, who had had at this time a fairly moderate reputation, suddenly swinging around and just lashing out at the leadership of the black community in Baltimore. Now, where this event then has ripple effects is Pat Buchanan, who was a young staffer for Richard Nixon at this time. Nixon had already thrown his hat in the ring for the 1968 presidential race. He's the, you know, the, the front runner on the Republican side. They were already starting to look around for possible vice presidential running mates. And Buchanan liked what he saw in Agnew in this, in this showdown with, with the black leadership of, of Baltimore. And he began to kind of relay this, this news and information about Agnew to his boss, Richard Nixon. And what they were looking for, if we step back for a second and think about the presidential politics of 1968, we have to remember that there was a wild card in that year, and that was George Wallace. George Wallace in 68 is running as an independent, and he is running as George Wallace tended to run back then, very aggressive, pushing hard against the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, uh, the emergence of the Black Power Movement, uh, and finding some success. You know, we have to remember that at one point, Wallace was polling at 21% as an independent third candidate. So Nixon wants someone to blunt George Wallace's appeal uh, on the right. But, but he doesn't want just a mere carbon copy of George Wallace. George Wallace is considered you know, a little bit crude. And so Agnes seemed to fit the bill. Here was a suburban, well-dressed, dapper um, governor from a mid-Atlantic state who was basically saying some of the same things that Wallace was in a much more palatable way. And that very much appealed to Nixon. So fast forward to the Republican convention, um, Nixon meets with the Republican leadership from various corners of the country. And Agnew is the compromise candidate. He is good enough for everyone, the sort of the liberal Northeastern wing of the party, the emerging Southern wing of the Republican party, people like Strom Thurmond, and so he comes out of this, um, not very well known to a lot of people outside of the room, but as a governor, he was known well enough inside of that room. And so Nixon then announces uh, that Sparrow Agnew will be his vice presidential candidate. And it was an announcement that shocked a lot of people. There are a lot of people in the rest of the country were, you know, who is this guy? There were real doubts about him. But... Uh, on the campaign trail in 1968, um, Agnew 
had some gaffes along the way, but what Nixon knew was that he was appealing to the kind of people they wanted. Uh, those, those, that white working class of, you know, the suburban class, the World War II veteran generation, the people who are looking at some of the swirling changes of the, you know, the counterculture, the anti-war movement, the black power movement, and they were wanting to say enough. And here was Spiro Agnew, who really seemed to be one of them, who was now on the ticket with Nixon. And of course, they win in a close race in 68. And there he is just barely two months, or I'm sorry, two years from being Baltimore County executive. There he is in January 69 being sworn in as the vice president. That was one of the things that really fascinated me about this is that what you just done is you focused on Agnew's rise in terms of Maryland politics, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what was going on in, in, in uh, with the Nixon campaign. But you also had this broader context in which in which it really seems that Agnew was so, you know, ideally timed. He, he's basically the right guy at the right place at the right time, yeah. not just in, in, in Baltimore, in, 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 uh, in Baltimore County in, in, in the early 60s or as, as the Republican nominee in uh, 66. But he's also at, at the right moment nationally. That that he he's coming at just the time when uh, you're starting to see this this uh, upswell of conservatism in, in, in America, and you're also seeing that the Republican Party uh, looking seriously at the South as as and and really, I mean, is there anybody out there who can you know check off all those boxes as, as squarely as Agnew? I don't think so. Uh, he, uh, you know, they, the list that they put together. Um, the, the, the finalists, if you will, for vice president. Um, um, I'm not going to be able to think of all the names right off the top of my head, but but they they all had they were all seen as being a little bit um, either either too northeastern, right? Uh, and and that at that time that would have been assumed to be too liberal, uh, the Nelson Rockefeller wing, if you will, of the Republican Party. Um, or a Ronald Reagan's name was, was bandied about, but he was thought to be too conservative. Um, and, and so he really does. I mean, Agnew really does check the boxes um, very neatly, even if, even if you know, most people at the time hadn't really heard of him. But once they got to know him, and once they began to listen to his speeches um, and, and learn the Spiro Agnew story, uh, the appeal is that he really does seem to personify and speak for this this growing um, segment of the American population that is, you know, fairly middle class, fairly traditional in their views. Um, that that you know believes that you know the Vietnam War is is difficult but worth fighting. Um, you know, believe that. That, that college is, is where you go and you respect the professors and the professors are going to take care of your kids and not let them go astray. And, and, um, and, and when they look around the, the country in 1968, more and more of those people, again, what Nixon you know, brilliantly tags the silent majority, more and more of those people are looking around at the country and they're, they're, it seems like everywhere they look, they don't like what they see. Right. Whether it's the, you know, the hippies and the long hair and the pot and 
the rock and roll and the anti-war movement and the student protesters and the black power protesters and the women's movement starting to get underway. And, and it just feels like a world is, their world is coming apart and who will step in to help them, you know, secure and stabilize that, that, that world that as they know it, as they understand it. And, you know, Richard Nixon, you know, to a certain degree, certainly. Um, but then Sparrow Agnew alongside also seemed to really represent that kind of stability, um, order, um, you know, respect for the law, respect for your parents, um, without being a total stiff, you know, without just being an old fuddy-duddy either, because he was still a fairly young man in his, in his 50, early 50s at this time. He was a dapper-looking, as I said, handsome fella, nice-looking family. Um, so he, he looked like your neighbor. He looked like the guy you might see at your, at your local barbecue, man in the grill, flipping the hamburgers. He looked like him. He sounded like him. And he said things that, that you and your neighbors would have been talking about as well. And so in that sense, he, he really was sort of the perfect, the perfect guy for this time for, for what, uh, the Republican party and people like Richard Nixon wanted to do politically. So he has this appeal and he has this audience. Does that translate into a pos positions of great responsibility once the uh, once Nixon is elected and they take over the presidency? It does not. <laughs> um, <laughs> and here's where we <laughs> here's where we get Richard Nixon. So um, Richard Nixon being Richard Nixon. So. Um, they they did not really know each other very well um, uh, going through 1968. They they knew each other a little bit. They'd had some interactions. They'd had some meetings, uh, but they certainly weren't close friends by any stretch of the imagination. There was a mutual respect. Um, there was a, there was an understanding of of what Agnew's role was, and Agnew obviously was very okay with that. I mean, my goodness, here's his here's his ticket to, you know, the vice presidency. Um, and after the election. There seems to be a moment when when Nixon is really reaching out uh, to Agnew and 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 promising the new kind of vice president. So Agnew gets invited down to Key Biscayne, where where Nixon had um, a, a place, and he's talking about how he wants Agnew to really you know have an important portfolio. He wants you know he offers Agnew some space in the White House for his office, which which was a big deal. And so Agnew leaves thinking, okay, I'm going to be a really important vice president in terms of substantive issues, policy, and I'm going to be right there in the White House. Well, their term begins and Nixon's insularity then really kicks in. And it doesn't take very long. I mean, like in a matter of weeks when Agnew has gotten the message that he's not going to be on the inside of the Nixon Team, he's not going to be consulted for import, any any important policy decisions, and this is frustrating. And frankly, Martha, he's bored. Um, he's relegated to the usual traditional vice presidential duties, ribbon cuttings. You, you get to go to the funeral, and <laughs> you know you're you're sent out to uh, you're sent out to to just sort of echo the administration's talking points and. And for you know someone who had experienced the headiness of the 68 campaign, 
this just, you know, even this just wasn't very exciting. So what he figured out, though, is and here's where I think you have to give Agnew. A, a, he, there was a kind of savviness about him that I think sometimes people didn't see at, the, at, at that time. He understood that if he went out and basically went back out almost like on the campaign trail again, um, that he could carve out uh, some fame and some notoriety for himself, but also he could help um, keep that support for the Nixon administration fired up. And so, so that's what he did beginning in the summer and fall of 1969. So he was, you know, the, the speaking schedule is, was about what it would be otherwise, but it's what he did with those speeches um, that, that really started to earn his keep, if you will, within the Nixon administration and, and what he did then. And here he was getting a little bit of help, speech writing help from, from Pat Robertson. I'm sorry, not Pat Robertson, Pat Buchanan. Um, and, and before long, William Sapphire, the speeches that he began to deliver in the autumn of 1969 were these rip roaring, uh, really campaign style speeches where he is very aggressive and very much on the attack and calling out the the enemies, you know, real and perceived of the Nixon administration. Uh, he goes after higher ed. He goes after the you know the, the kind of muddled headed professors and he goes after the student movement uh, and he goes after the anti war movement. These are the times of the big moratorium and anti war protests. Uh, and then the the capper really. November of 1969 is in a speech in Des Moines. He goes after the media, and 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 it works. And I'll just back up a little bit here. There's a little backstory here that that I think is important. Nixon had given his what we call his Vietnamization speech at the beginning of November in '69, in which he announced that he, you know, the, the emphasis is going to be turning more of the fighting over to the South Vietnamese. The speech was received coolly by the analysts of the day. Um, and this really angered Nixon because he thought this was a major foreign policy address and he expected, you know, some real traction uh, coming out of it and he didn't get it. And he blamed the television networks for it. And he, you know, Nixon being Nixon, he was always convinced that he just could never get a fair shake in the media. Well, a lot of politicians feel that way. But what's different about this moment was uh, that Richard Nixon and Pat Buchanan decided to turn that frustration into a talking point, if you will, to make it a, 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 a an, an issue. And so in Agnew's speech then, so they, they got together and wrote this speech for Agnew to deliver. Agnew did some work on it as well, but it's mainly a Pat Buchanan, Richard Nixon speech with some Agnew touches. What he did at this Des Moines speech then was basically just make the accusation that the television networks were fundamentally and institutionally biased against Republicans and against Nixon in particular. And this just was a lightning bolt. This was a hugely controversial speech, uh, and it was understood that that he he was singling out the television networks 
but that he meant sort of the media or the press overall. And actually, he followed up with a speech the next week in which he said, yeah, I mean, the Washington Post and New York Times as well. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing there, but that was the gist. And and this it was hugely controversial. And from Nixon and Agnew's point of view, it was hugely successful. It struck a chord. And in a lot of those same uh, you know, suburban, white working class, middle class, those silent majority voters, the letters come pouring into letters to the editor, to Agnew's office, to Nixon's office, saying, yes, yes, the media is out to get you guys. Uh, and of course, that idea, you know, has stuck. So that was going into 1970 then. Uh, Agnew has real value now to Nixon, um, and he knows it, and Nixon knows it. And so they, uh, through 1970, through the midterm elections, he's continued, you know, there, the, the tragedy at Kent State happens in, in May of 1970. Um, Agnew dials it back just a little bit after that, but not for long. And then on through the midterm elections of, of that year, 1970, it's just hammering away at the press, at academia, at the anti-war movement, at the counterculture. Um, and, and to the point where his personal fame has, has risen um, during that time, uh, Gallup does a poll where Agnew finishes third among the most admired men in the world behind Nixon and Billy Graham. So the second half of that first term then, going into the 72 re-election, again, we see Richard Nixon being Richard Nixon. Um, Nixon was a little unnerved by how popular Agnew had become. Um, he was also a little unnerved that, that they might actually start to lose a few more moderate and liberal Republicans. And so he sends Agnew off on various international junkets, Southeast Asia. Um, and, and then by the time the 1972 election rolls around with McGovern as the Democratic nominee, things are pretty well in hand. Agnew doesn't really need to do much. Um, and, but he is positioned well uh, going into the second term. So it seems to be the front runner and for 1976. Um, so there was a moment in 1972 when Nixon thought about replacing Agnew on the ticket, maybe replacing him with John Connolly, um, a Texan who had, was in the process of leaving the Democratic Party to, be, to become a Republican. But to, to get a sense of just how important Agnew had become, Nixon mulls it over, has a few discussions with it, but it's made very clear that if you do, you're going to lose some important uh, conservative supporters um, who wouldn't vote for McGovern, but they just, as, as they made clear, they just might not vote. So Nixon realized he was stuck with Agnew at that point. You spend a chapter talking about the, where Agnew fit in terms of the Southern strategy and the way that Agnew personified the Southern strategy. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon that just a little bit before we get to the end of Agnew's career. What were the Republicans doing with the Southern strategy and, and, and what was Agnew's role with it? And what might that have portended going forward? Right. This was, I think, um, one of the most surprising um, 
developments of our of our research was Agnew's appeal in the South. Uh, I'll speak for myself here. I I didn't expect that going into this project. Um, I hadn't really thought about it, to be honest with you. (laughs) But what what we see is how, you know, Eisenhower uh, had begun to make some inroads into that old single party, democratic, conservative Southern base. Uh, Agnew had, I'm sorry, Eisenhower had begun to, Peel some of those states away, but the big question then is, well, are they there for good? Because you follow Eisenhower with John Kennedy and then, of course, Lyndon Johnson. But, but it did seem like then, in, the, in light of the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, uh, the Democratic Party more openly pushing toward the progressive side of the political spectrum, it did seem to Richard Nixon... Um, and others, um, but especially Nixon, by 66 or so, that there might be some some votes to be gained there among white Southerners who are looking at the Democratic Party of their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers, right? They're looking at it now in 1966 in the aftermath of the Voting Rights Act and saying, what am I, what am I doing here? Why am I still a Democrat? Um, so... So there seemed to be votes there to be to be gained. George Wallace emerging in '64 and then and then jumping ahead to '68 also seemed to indicate that that there was a large body of white Southern voters thinking seriously about just not being Democrats. So Nixon was very aware of that. the The key was, you know, how do you how do you appeal to them? And well, I was saying a minute ago that. You know, Agnew was, as a governor of Maryland, not a stranger to the South. Um, he's certainly not a Southerner by any stretch of the imagination, but he's not from Massachusetts, you know. Um, and Southern Maryland, where St. Mary's College is, 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 you know, today it's quite red, right? In, in many ways, culturally and politically, it still identifies as, as conservative. Um, so... Agnew then, as he is campaigning in 68, but then as he goes back out in 69, they send him to Montgomery, to, you know, Jackson, to New Orleans, to Houston, and they realize that that he is striking a chord with those white Southerners, tend to be a little bit more uh, what you call New South, they, they're business owners, they're professionals. Uh, in other words, you know, they're they're not kind of the stereotypical um, rural white Southern voter. Um, they consider themselves to be, you know, educated, and and many of them are. Um, and and Agnew appeals to them in a way that George Wallace doesn't. And really, to everyone's surprise, and and it's really fun to read the letters um, that Agnew's receiving um, in the in the summer and fall of 1969 when he's given these speeches in places like Alabama and Mississippi and Texas and Florida. And, and the, 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 the surprise in the response is, is it's really fun to read there to think, Hey, this guy's great. And you can just, you can sense the unexpectedness of it all. Um, but Nixon and Agnew, you know, they're pretty sharp politicians and they realize let's keep, let's keep going here. Let's keep sending Agnew to the South. Um, an important part of that story, Mark, is is the role that Strom Thurmond played, uh, who had 
let the Democratic Party, uh, South Carolina, Strom Thurmond, had let the Democratic Party in 64. And Thurmond was in many ways a, a liaison at that time between this conservative white Southern vote who are looking to leave the party, the Democratic Party, and the Republican Party that Thurman was now a member of. So one of the things that, that, that I did as I began to explore this, uh, this part of the story is I went down to Clemson where Strom Thurmond's papers are and where Harry Dent's papers are. Now, Harry Dent is, is a guy who, who worked on Strom Thurmond's staff for years, uh, really well connected in, in Southern politics. And, and their papers are down at Clemson. And I, I spent a spring break during this time going through all of these letters. And, and you can hear, you can see just these references to Agnew in those letters. They're not even writing to Spiro Agnew. They're referencing Agnew. And that, that really said to us then, as we looked at those letters, that he's really struck a chord. You can see it kind of in the grassroots of, of, of these white Southern supporters who are, give me a reason to become a Republican. And Harry Dent called these people the switchovers. We got to get these switchovers, switching over from the Democratic Party. And much to their surprise, Agnew seemed to fit that bill as well. He was, you know, he talked tough against um, the Black Power movement. Um, he talked about respecting local traditions. Well, that's what they love to hear. Um, and he wasn't George Wallace. And to those more suburban, kind of what we call New South voters, that was really appealing. So really much to everyone's surprise, you know, Agnew, Agnew by, as we even uh, titled the chapter, Dixie's favorite, Agnew by 71 is, is really heralded as, as, you know, a, a, a kind of a local hero among those white Southerners who want to join the Republican Party and many of whom are doing it too and will continue to do that up through the 80s. So you have Agnew at, you know, at the start of 1973. Uh, Nixon's beginning the second term. Agnew seems to be in a prime position to succeed Nixon in 1976, the bicentennial year. And yet by the end of the year, he's no longer vice president of the United States. His political career is over. How does that happen so quickly? It's it's quite a story. And, and I'm 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 guessing that, that some of your listeners have heard Rachel Maddow's uh, excellent podcast called Bagman, in which she she does a deep dive just on this story. Um, thankfully, uh, <laughs> when when Maddow announced um, this podcast when it came out a couple of years ago, Zach and Jerry and I were, uh oh, <laughs> uh, what's what's she going to do here? Uh, but luckily, she really zeroes in and, and does a terrific job on on this on this case. What happened though, Mark was. Back when he was county executive and then as governor, Agnew had taken part in basically what was the kickback scheme for local contracts uh, at the county level and then at the state level for, you know, again, Baltimore County is, is building lots of roads and buildings and bridges and homes and um, sewers and, you know, there are just lots of, of local contracts to be had. And Agnew, like as he pointed out, like, like everyone before him, um, plugged into the system where they got, they got a little percentage, uh, for, for, you know, for a, a, if a contract is worth 5%, 
if, if, if there's a contract that, that Agnew would get 5% of it in cash. Um, so this had been going on for a while. And the Department of Justice, though, had been investigating this graft um, in Maryland for, for, a, for a while as the 70s began. But they weren't looking for Agnew. They were looking for his successor as Baltimore County Executive, a guy named Dale Anderson. But as they began to crack that case, um, the people involved then began to say, oh, yeah, and by the way, Spiro Agnew had done it, too, when he was here. And now, so suddenly Agnew gets pulled into this investigation. Um, and this is taking place through the spring and summer of 1973. Agnew, of course, they don't tell Agnew about it. Um, you got to do your investigation first. But finally, he gets word of it. Um, oh, I want to say mid, you know, summer of 1973, he's informed that, yeah, you have been named in this investigation. And he instantly, you know, denies it. He's defiant. He hasn't done anything wrong. Uh, he's complaining that that he's he's never going to get a fair shake because there there are leaks coming out of the investigation, um, and so on and so forth. And as we go into the 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 autumn then of, of 1973, uh, the investigations are just getting closer and closer. And at, as we get into the autumn then of 1973, they 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 signal to the Nixon. Um, White House that look, we've got the goods on Agnew here, and and it's just a an ironclad open and shut case. We've got mountains of evidence that he's been taking these kickbacks, or he was taking these kickbacks not only as county executive, not only as Maryland's governor, but unbelievably he was still taking cash envelopes as vice president. It's unbelievable. These these contractors would drive down from Towson or whatever, and they'd be shown into the vice president's office in the old executive building. Uh, How do you do? Come in. They'd sit down. They would slide the envelope of cash across Agnew's desk. He would sweep it into his top drawer. Thank you very much. And off they'd go. <laughs> Just remarkable. <laughs> anyway, they they made it very clear to to Nixon, and then of course to Agnew's attorneys that look, this is this is going to happen, and so. Um, he he cuts a deal, and he cuts a pretty sweet deal, if you think about it. Um, he is allowed to resign. He pays a $10,000 fine for tax evasion just from one year, 1967, and that's it. No jail time. But, of course, he has to resign. He's not vice president anymore. Um, and so just as this is unfolding – um, he appears in a Baltimore courtroom and pleads and pleads no contract, no contest. And that's it. He leaves the courtroom and the judge says, you know, do you understand what this means? Yes, sir. Yes, your honor. He's out. He's ushered into a car and off he drives. And, and that's it. It's all over. And one of the interesting, well, it's a lot of interesting things about it, but Part of the backstory there, of course, looming over this is Watergate. And Agnew had nothing to do with that, but there was suddenly real concern in the Department of Justice under Elliot Richardson that you might have a situation where both the president and the vice president are going to be have to resign or be convicted, right? 
Um, and so the way this unfolded was that that put a lot of pressure on on the investigators to to really try to get Agnew to resign because they thought that would just be so much trauma to have both your president and your vice president gone at the same time. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, we're, we're still in the autumn of 73. Things don't look good for Nixon, but it's still unclear as to, well, just how is that going to unfold? Here was a case with Agnew where the evidence was undisputed and you had him and you could get him out. And so they did it. And that says to be your final chapter, which, which is in, in one sense, it's a study in contrast because you describe in it, you know, what happens in uh, America kind of, you know, between uh, this period and taking us up to the present day with, with the subtitle, Donald Trump's America. And, and how, right. you know, a lot of those trends that you describe that, that, that really have carried Agnew so far, you know, continue onward. And yet Agnew gets left behind. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost right. tragic in, in, in a sense because you, you have this person who, as you explained, because he resigned, he doesn't get a pension. Uh, because he's associated with corruption, yep. nobody wants anything to do with him. And and, and you you describe how he is in, in effect trying to he he's gone from being you know the 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 president in waiting the 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 person most likely to step mm-hmm. up the person who seems ideally positioned to take advantage of what's going on and it just all passes him by. It sure does. Uh, it sure does. And what I think. You know, I, what I think connects him to today um, is, is well, a couple of things. One is, as I mentioned earlier, I think that there's, I think historians are, are seeing this, this kind of conservative populism in the form of a Palin or a Tea Party and, and, and realizing that it's, 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 you know, the Republican Party in many ways is, is you know, it's not the party of, say, Dwight Eisenhower, the 1950s. And, and today it's, it's you know, in many ways not the party of yeah, Mitt Romney. And so so what's going on there, right, um, with the Freedom Caucus, for example? Um, and so I think that's part of, of what has led us to go back and look at people like Spiro Agnew. But, but there is a, a more clear connection, uh, connect the dots, if you will, between Agnew and Trump, and and that's Pat Buchanan. Um, you know, Buchanan was was always more conservative than Nixon, certainly, and he saw in Agnew the the kind of political style that that he thought, correctly as it turned out, would really appeal to these you know these otherwise quote unquote normal suburban working class types, and this is kind of feisty anti elite. Um, 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 energy that 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 an Agnew brought to the trail, and that Pat Buchanan brought to his you know various careers as a journalist and the and the communications director for Reagan and so on. But but then we have to remember that that Buchanan himself ran in the '90s, challenged um, um, for the Republican nomination, and 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 put a scare into George Bush at one point in New Hampshire. Um, so that told Pat Buchanan that those that spirit was still out there, right? Um, Agnew was gone, but that 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 kind of political populism on the right was still there to be had, and and they're they're continuing to vote Republican, but but you know but they're still voting for, if you will, more establishment types from the Bush family, for example. Um, 
And there is um, there's a, a moment of intersection between Trump and Buchanan uh, in the Reform Party when they're both kind of uh, this sort of fledgling third party in 2000, um, where they 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 sort of intersect, but but don't really you know have much to say to one another. Um, but by the time Trump then throws his hat in the ring for 2016. You know, he has sort of reinvented himself uh, into this, into what we see, into this, this, you know, this slashing, attacking populist um, um, leader. And then by the time he runs for president and as he wins, Pat Buchanan's delighted. Uh, Pat Buchanan looks like or or, or Pat Buchanan looks at, at what has happened and he feels vindicated. And he feels vindicated not only for himself, but he feels vindicated that that the kind of the legacy that that people like Agnew um, put into into motion then have have has now uh, culminated in a Trump presidency and an utter takeover of the Republican Party by by Trump and by the the, the sort of populist Freedom Caucus style. Hmm. We've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. Um, so, in the in the last stages of the Agnew book, I, I came across um, a couple of journalists uh, whose columns just kept jumping out to me as as being really, really in, insightful. And one of them is a guy named Richard Wilson, um, who wrote for the, the the Cowles newspaper. He wrote for the Des Moines Register, but he was um, um, he was in Washington, D.C., he'd been in, in, uh, in, he's the D.C. correspondent for the Des Moines Register going back to the 30s, actually. And Clark Mullenhoff, who also um, had uh, these Iowa connections. And, and these were two journalists of a generation, uh, kind of pre-Woodward and Bernstein, um, that were really plugged in and were really insightful. Um, and I just, I feel like there's, there's, I'm not sure where this is going to lead, but there's there's more um, to that to the story of that generation of journalists that the kind of last pre Woodward and Bernstein style journalist that that is worth um, digging into and seeing what I can find. And I've just done just a little tiny bit of research uh, in the Richard Wilson papers that are down at the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library. Uh, in West Branch, Iowa, which is a wonderful place to do research uh, for anyone who's <laughs> anyone who's interested, it's a great place to do research. Um, so I'm just in the earliest stages, Mark, to just really kind of splashing around and, and seeing what those papers look like. Well, I hope those papers lead you to uh, a great uh, produce, uh, productive bounty. Well, thanks. I, I'm I'm encouraged. I'm excited. Um, there, both collections are large. And in discussions with the one of the archivists down there, um, it, 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 I get the impression that, that the word that he used was underutilized, which, <laughs> as a historian, that's music to our ears, isn't it? <laughs> Indeed it is. Well, well uh, Charles Holden, thank you very much for taking some time to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks, Mark. You too. Appreciate it.